Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. I suppose the two most important questions that man ever faces is first the question of what God is like, who God is and what he's like, the question of the nature of God, and the second most important question that he ever faces is the question of what you and I are and what we're like. If we understand the nature of God and if we understand the nature of ourselves, there's a good chance that uh, we will be able to live satisfactorily and that we will be able to live effectively in terms of service. But it's when, it's when we have false views of God that we put false requirements upon ourselves or we do not put requirements that ought to be there. And in either case, man is in trouble. And it is when we have a false understanding of ourselves as to what we're capable of and as to what we should, what should be expected of us, uh, when we have false perceptions there, you can always count on it that we go wrong. So I want to deal basically with the question of what our nature is like, what we are like. Now I'm going to use scripture and Christian theology because the scripture is very clear when it says that Man is made in the image of God, and I'm convinced that we never know who we are until we face God. And when we, when we have some conception of what He is, there is a chance then that we can know ourselves accurately and in a realistic way. Now, uh, wherever you turn in the history of theology, you'll find that every major theologian has dealt somewhere with the question of what is the nature of man. I was in a bookstore the other day and looked and noticed a book by uh, Pannenberg on the nature of man. And not too long ago, I picked up one by uh, Jürgen Moltmann, and my first reaction was, I've got that. And then I realized that uh, those probably the two most influential uh, current theologians in Germany, the second one now, uh, has written his own volume of what is the nature of man. It is an item that is uh, at the heart of everything theological. So it isn't difficult to make a case for the importance of the question. Now, uh, I remember uh, the story of Schopenhauer. They said he was in a beer garden one night, and he, is, he was so disheveled and so distraught, he had his head buried in his hands that the bouncer came up and looked down at him and was getting ready to throw him out. And just before he threw him out, he looked down at the man, not knowing that he was a great philosopher, and said, Who are you? And Schopenhauer looked up and said, would to God that I knew. Now, uh, part of the pessimism that uh, permeates the philosophy of Schopenhauer may be the result of the fact that he didn't know who he was. If he had, perhaps he would have come out with something a little more hopeful and creative. But wherever you turn, this is crucial. Whether you're a social scientist or whether you're a political scientist or whether you're a psychologist, what is a human being? What does it mean to be a, a human person? Uh, it is important uh, not only for the scholars, it's important for the person who's in, in pastoral ministry. What should you expect out of your people, and what should you try to work to see achieved or accomplished in the lives of your people? What should you expect out of yourself before you go to them? Or when you come to such pertinent things as marriage, what should we expect out of a marriage relationship? 
Where, when is it fulfilled, and, and what is the potential that's there? Now, these are some of the things that I'd like to sort of either deal with directly or uh, indirectly as we move along through these, because if we come to what is a sound and a realistic view of the nature of man, you can count on it, that that knowledge will be pertinent in the, the most uh, intimate and the most practical and the most personal relations that we have. Now, the text that I want to use here is one that I've never heard anybody kick around much, but as the years have passed, it's become more and more significant to me. It's in the 10th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, and uh, frankly, I've read one sermon on it, and that was in an ancient volume. The thing was preached uh, 200 years ago, I think, by Timothy Dwight, the president of Yale, but I've never heard a sermon on it. That's the only sermon I think I've ever seen on it. Now, you may have one, or you may have preached on it a dozen times, and you may have heard somebody preach on it a dozen times. If you have, I'll be interested in that. But uh, the text is in Jeremiah 10, 23. Now, I'm going to use my own translation of the thing. If you, I've got a new international version with me, and that translation I'm not particularly happy about. Uh, the uh, RSV is a very good translation. The King James, uh, a satisfactory one, but... I spent five years, I spent ten years studying Hebrew and five years teaching it. So uh, I'm going to dare to just spell out for you what the Hebrew text actually says. Now the text that I have here in front of me says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Now the latter part of that is quite adequate. The first part does not reflect all that I think Jeremiah was speaking about. And here's what the Hebrew actually says. I know, O Lord, and it is the personal name for God which is used. It is a name in the Old Testament, Yahweh, the name which we translate oftentimes in ritual and in hymnody as Jehovah. It is the personal name of Israel for God, the name revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai. So the prophet is speaking to the God whom he knows by name. And he's speaking sort of a bottom line statement. I know, O Yahweh, I know, O Yahweh, that man's way, and what it is, is the way of man is not in himself. The way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Now, the Hebrew in this one is uh, much more interesting than the English because it reflect, it has in it elements that you cannot translate into English. You probably know enough to know that when you go to translating from one language to another, you, you oftentimes will find things. There are things that are extremely difficult to communicate uh, exactly when you move from one language to another. In the rabbinic literature of the Jews, there's a saying that uh, the translator is our best friend, but... Remember, every translator is a liar. <laughs> now, I think uh, that is a little bit of an overstatement in the latter half of that, but it reflects the fact that uh, the, the problem that is there when you move from one language to another. Now, in the, in the Hebrew, you have two words used for man. I know, O Lord, Yahweh, that man's way, and the Hebrew word used there for man is the Hebrew word Adam. I know, O Lord, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in man, and there's a second word used, ish, which is a, uh, a different Hebrew word with a different meaning. Uh, 
I know, O Lord, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in a man who walks to direct his steps. Now, the word Adam is the generic term for human beings, for homo sapiens in the Old Testament. You go to Israel today, and a son of Adam, a Ben-Adam, Ben is the Hebrew word for son, a Ben-Adam is a human being. That's the, that's the Israeli expression for a human being, a son of Adam. So what you have in that is a generic term which is inclusive of all of us. Now, there's no sex in the term, because if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you will find that the text says, God said, let us make Adam in our own image, male and female, created he them. So Adam is inclusive of the female as much as it is of the, of the male. And in Genesis 1, where you have Adam, you have both male and female, uh, included in that expression. So it uh, is a generic term. It is inclusive of all people that are human beings, you see. So he says, I know, O Lord, about, ma- about men, about man, about Adam, about men and women. I know, O Lord, about human persons, that their way is not in themselves. There is a way for them. There is a way about them. There is a key to them. There is a pattern for them. There is a, there is a human way. But the way of man is not in himself. Now, I don't have to, uh, talk to you to get your mind running on this because all, all I have to do is mention that and your mind begins to think of Old Testament passages where way is used. Uh, the first psalm with its emphasis upon way. Or, uh, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, that's the wrong way. That's not man's way. There is a way that seemeth right, but there is a way that is right. Now, I don't need to push you, this crowd, to remind you that when Jesus came, you will remember one of the things he said in describing himself was, I am the way. And before we get through, I think that must be linked with this. So what you have in the Old Testament is a clear statement that Adam's way The human being's way, your way and mine, is not in us. Then you come to the second line of the verse. I know, O Lord, that Adam's way is not in himself. It is not in, the Hebrew word is ish, it is not in a man who walked to direct his steps. Now, the word ish is a Hebrew word for an individual. It is for a single individual. It is for the particular person in isolation. I know, O Lord, that mankind's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps. Now, uh, uh, something else that is significant there is that in the expression, who walks, you have a pregnant phrase. It says more than the typical American reading it would draw out of it. Hebrew is a very cryptic language. It is uh, very, expresses itself very briefly so that you will find just a few words used sometimes to express what we would take a paragraph to express. And who walks is a Semiticism for a goal-oriented creature. Because, you see, a man is a person who has legs. What are legs for? They're to walk. Well, why do you walk? For fun? No, you walk to get somewhere. Because there is something about us that we're goal-oriented. That we are most uncomfortable when we have wasted time. Now, we may talk about loafing as great fun, but 
but do you know many things that are more destructive to your sense of personhood? You may be like me. I don't like to work, but I always like to have work. And I'm always more comfortable when I have. Uh, someone asked Paul Reese uh, if he liked to write books. And he said no. He's published, I think, about 28 or 30. And somebody said, well, why did you write all these books if you, didn't like, if you don't like to write? He said, I like to have written. And that's where I got that line from. I like that. And all of us are people that like to have work because there's something about it. We feel cleaner. We feel more content. We feel more uh, uh, at home with ourselves and with our world. We are freer, better people when we've done it. Why? There is something within us that makes us feel that we are supposed to accomplish something. There are few things that irritate you more than a dead-end street. And I don't even have to add when you're in a hurry. If you're in a hurry, it's bad. But even if you're not in a hurry, you don't like dead-end streets. I don't like dead-end streets. We're made so that we like to get somewhere and accomplish something goal-oriented. Now, that's one of the things that is very different about biblical thought from, say, Greek thought in the ancient world. Because if you study uh, Greek thought, you will remember that it was cyclical in its view of time. And uh, their view, if you get Aristotle and Plato, if you wait long enough, they're somewhere down in the future. There'll be another case where a guy by the name of Paul Shepard, who happens to be a district superintendent in a church called the United Methodist Church, maybe 500 years down the road, but he'll stand up and he will have come from the doctor where he had his eye checked because he had an infection in it. And he'll uh, introduce a friend of his that is called Dennis Kinlaw. Now, if you wait long enough in Greek thought, you'll come around again. But one of the things about biblical thought is it has a beginning and it has an end. We want to get somewhere and we want to accomplish something. And so biblical thought has a beginning and it has an end. And so there's eschatology in biblical thought. Now, there should be eschatology in, in an individual person's life. There should be something telic in our lives. We should have goals and objectives. Now, what does he say? I know, O Lord, that mankind, anyone you come up with, his way is not in himself. It is not in the individual who is goal-oriented to direct his steps. That's a fascinating tribute to man. That we are goal-oriented and we're supposed to get somewhere and supposed to do something, but the key as to how to do it and as the, the directions as to how to get there, they basically are not in us. Now, uh, uh, I've kicked that one around a good bit, and I, as I say, that verse has become more uh, seminal for me, and it has become more central for me as a, as a key toward coming at the nature of, of, of what a human person is. Now, what he's saying is that you and I are not self-contained units. We are not ends in ourselves. Uh, we are made for others. And we don't draw our lives from ourselves. Our way is not in us. Now, frankly, that runs counter to most of modern thought, at least most of what modern thought tries to think, because we want to emphasize our own autonomy. Uh, I listened to uh, somewhere the other day, I turned on the, the radio and got uh, a part of one of these little inserts uh, sort of like spectrum type thing, and the fellow was talking about the importance of having a good psychoanalyst. 
And uh, uh, he said, uh, described uh, how important it is to have a psychoanalyst that uh, you're friendly with. Because he said, what you want to do is get your life under control, under your own control. That's the supreme thing when you get to the place where your life's under your own control and other people aren't running it for you. That's freedom, maturity, that's fulfillment when you get your life under your own control. But you want your analyst to be very friendly because you'll need him a long time. (laughs) And I thought, there's another illustration of the kind of illusion that we live under. Uh, we may get it under our own control, but how do we get it under our own control? We keep him incredibly close, and him with a little h instead of him with a big h, as you will notice. Now, what's being said is, in the in the Jeremiah story, and it is the basic biblical insight about man, it seems to me, that is that we're not self-contained units. We had on our staff at, uh, or he's still on the staff at Asbury, uh, fellow who was our chief business officer, and he loves to fly, and he's a big, tall, six-foot-five guy, and uh, it always interested me. He flies these very small planes, and I was always interested how he could get into the thing, but uh, he took me flying with him one day, and he loves flying. He has a son who flies for Delta. You go in his office, and there are pictures of, if they're not planes on the wall, they're birds. He's interested in flying. And one day as we were talking about flying, he said to me, Dennis, he said, there are two things in every plane. It doesn't matter how big it is or how small. He said, you have to have in every plane a compass and a horizon. And I said, well, I understand what a compass is. It tells you the difference between east and west and north and south, but what is a horizon? Well, he said, that's the one that tells you how you the plane sits in the air in relation to the surface of the earth. In other words, it tells you which is up and which is down. And I said, come on, Harry, don't tell me you're so stupid that you can't tell the difference between up and down. And he looked back at me and assured me that he was not the stupid one. He said, uh, when you get into the clouds where you cannot see the surface of the earth, which really means when you get in an airplane where you do not have an external frame of reference, if you're moving fast enough, you cannot tell which way is up and which way is down. I was talking with a fellow who flew jets, flew for United Airlines for a while, but before that, in the Korean War, he flew, uh, he was in the Air Force and was a jet fighter. His uh, buddy, wingtip buddy, crashed his plane into the ground at full speed, side of a freight train, because he thought the red lights on the caboose of the freight train were the wingtip lights of his buddy, had no notion of where he was in relation to the surface of the earth. Now, every Boy Scout knows that. He looks for the moss on the, what is it, the north side of the tree? It lets you know which way is north. Uh, every sailor who sails beyond the uh, the sight of land knows that he has to have an external frame of reference to his to himself. The compass it relates to that uh, uh, magnetic north pole. There is no way that a human being can go in a straight line without an external frame of reference. So that he will not accomplish what he's supposed to uh, 
I remember when I I grew up in the South in the days when uh, before there were tractors and we plowed with mules. And one of the things that every kid who lived on a farm had to learn was how to plow straight furrow. And uh, I lived in town and I was enamored with these guys that could plow behind a mule and plow straight furrow. And uh, I remember hearing about uh, the fellow who was training his son, and he said, now you see, you look down to the other end of the field, and you plow towards something. Don't take your eye off of it, because if you take your eye off it, you'll wander all over the field. So when he came back, his son had plowed all over the field, and he said, why didn't you sight by something he did? He said, see that cow? I sighted by her. But now you see, <laughs> it is not built into us. Now, I've come to the place where I'm convinced that God has made us so that everything about our life is a pattern that speaks about ultimate spiritual realities. And so that what he is saying here is absolutely basic. I know, O Lord, that man's way is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. The compass isn't in us. The horizon isn't in us. It's beyond us. Now, we have to have it for direction. But I'm convinced we have to have something extrinsic to ourselves for uh, for mental health. That uh, if you want a person to come apart, go to pieces, that was the thing that interested, was it Daniel Defoe with his story of uh, uh, Robinson Crusoe? Do you remember the incredible delight and also total panic when he found a footstep in the sand. You've given anything in the world for human fellowship, but scared to death it might not be friendly fellowship. So there he was torn in that. Now, uh, uh, I question whether anybody can keep his balance who does not have a context where he relates to others around him. Uh, I think... Uh, I, wish I had a chance to talk with some uh, people who have done experiments in this realm. And it may be you know something that, about this. If you do, well, I hope you will share with me this, this thing about putting people in water where uh, they're in equilibrium and uh, their uh, gravity is gone and what happens to them. But I was in Scotland uh, and visited an old castle and in it, they had a dungeon where they had put a number of religious leaders and, you know, in the history of Scotland uh, and some of their religious conflicts and the people who were martyred for their faith and so forth. And this was a rather celebrated one. But it was well known for its dungeon. It had what was called a bottle dungeon. The bottle dungeon was cut down into pure granite. Uh, there was a shaft. It must have been about 30 inches across. And that shaft was cut down through about six feet of solid stone, just a, just a round shaft. And then, after about six feet of solid stone, it was cut out larger. But instead of being cut out square like a room or rectangular like a room, it was cut out cir circularly, and it was cut out like a top. So there was no corner anywhere in it. And it came down to a point like this, on all sides, like you were inside a top, and it was round. And uh, that section was about ten feet deep. Now, people in those days weren't as tall as you and I are. 
but I'm six, and you, what do you stretch, and you reach about nine feet maybe at best, something like that. Well, there the, in, the entryway to that tunnel, you see, would be a good foot or more beyond the tallest person they put in there probably. And then what he had was just a pure shaft of solid granite. There was no way to escape, and nobody ever did. Because all that was in that bottle dungeon was uh, what other people had left behind. Uh, their own excrement and uh, maybe and uh, bones perhaps of some that had died, this kind of thing. But anyway, uh, once a day they came and lifted the lid off and a little light came down and they dropped a guy's food and he had to catch what he could. And what he didn't catch this way, he had to pick up out of what was on the floor. And it was an incredibly cruel way to handle people. But nobody ever survived sane. They leave them in there a few days and they go raving crazy. When they came out, they were completely disoriented. There was one guy they brought out and he kept his senses about. And so they quizzed him as to how he did it. He said, ah, I had six pebbles in my pocket. And I'd take those six pebbles and move them from one pocket to another. And there were always six, and they never changed. And there was one unchanging reality in my life. All the rest was total subjectivity. Now, you've read enough and know enough that you get a person where he has no external frame of reference, and he begins to hallucinate. And his imagination runs wild. And there is no way, ultimately, that he can tell the difference between reality and what he's imagined. So this guy said there was one stable, unchanging reality in his life, and that's what held him. Now, I think that's some of what Jeremiah was saying when he said, I know, O Lord, that man's way, Adam's way, is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his step. We do not operate correctly unless we've got an external frame of reference. Now, we could go through a stack of other scriptures on this, but uh, just let me mention quickly uh, one, and your mind will pull all of this together, so all I need to do is allude to it, but you take, for instance, Jesus' teaching about himself as the light of the world. John 8, John 9, John 12, where he speaks and says, I am the light of the world. You will remember he says... Uh, as long as I'm in the world, the world has light. When I leave, it's gone. He says, work while you have the light, because when the night comes, no man can work. Now think for a minute about just that simple statement about work while you have the light, because when the night comes, no man can work. What he is saying is that there's no lighting system in you and me. There's no lighting system in you and me. And so if you and I want to get anywhere in terms of what we need light for, we can only do it when a light extrinsic to ourselves shines upon our pathway. We'll be left in our night otherwise, and in our wandering, and in our blindness. Uh, I dare you to read through the Gospel of John and notice the passages where he speaks and refers to himself. It, uh, you'll find it in the third chapter, you'll find it in the eighth chapter, you'll find it in the ninth chapter, you'll find it in the twelfth chapter, and they're all elaborations of what you find in the first chapter where he says, uh, light came into the world, and men loved darkness more than light, because their deeds were evil, 
But he speaks and calls himself the light that came into the world, the light that lightens every man that comes into the world. So Christ is the light. So what's being said? It's being said that man uh, has no lighting system built within himself, and he must have something from beyond himself if he is to see where he is to go. And then, of course, when you get into the epistles of Paul, you get the concept of grace. There's no way you can get there in his own strength. Uh, so we can work it from many angles. We just come through the uh, Easter season. And that ought to bring home one thing to us. It's very clear, if you read the life of Jesus, that the Gospels tell us that he is essential to life. You will remember that Jesus said uh, to those that were about him one day, he said, you will not come to me that you might have life. Now, if you'd stuck a pin in these guys, they'd have jumped. If you'd have checked their blood pressure, it'd been somewhere in the human realm. Uh, so they had physical life, but Jesus looked at them and said, you will not come to me in order that you might have life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what he was saying was that no man really lives uh, out, out of relationship to him. And the fact that it's possible for men to live out of relationship to him is very clear in that line where he says, you will not come to me in order that you might have life. Now, there are some people that believe that all of the gifts of God belong to all men, and that one of the things that Christ came was, he came to let us know what he had done for all men, and that all men are saved, whether they know it or not. And our business is to tell people what he's done for them, so that they we let them all know that they're saved. But Jesus said very explicitly, you, and he had some people in mind, you won't come to me in order that you can live, which means as far as he was concerned, they were not alive. You will remember, he said to the rich ruler, if, uh, if thou wouldst enter into life. Now, he had youth, he had wealth, he had social position, he had uh, power. But Jesus said, if you would, if thou wouldst enter into life, is the way the king came to reason. I love it. If thou wouldst enter into life. Now, what he was saying was, if you will get rightly related to me, you will have life. But you don't have it in yourself. Now, you take the whole message of the incarnation. Uh, it's interesting how uh, uh, it begins with what we speak of as the conception in the body of the virgin and ends with the ascension in which he disappears, disappears from view. Now, traditionally, in Orthodox theology and in the liturgy and in the creed, what we're told is that the different thing about the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus is that it was not the beginning of his life, that he lived somewhere else before he came to Bethlehem. And that when he ascended into heaven, he went somewhere else. Historically, we say he stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And when he came, he was called a Savior. So that what is being said is that my salvation is not in me. My salvation is from beyond. My salvation is from outside me. And it came from beyond in Jesus Christ and went to the beyond in the ascension and, and, and I, if I am to know salvation, I must be related to a world that is beyond mine, one I can't see and one I can't touch and one I can't feel and one I can't measure. Now, that's hard on us. It's hard on modern men because we want to uh, be autonomous and uh, we don't want to believe in anything we can't see. I have a friend who's a professor of psychiatry at Duke University, Bill Wilson. And uh, he said to me, Dennis, until I was in my 40s, he said, I was a very happy pagan. He 
uh, I didn't believe in anything I couldn't see, touch, feel, or measure. And he said, I was particularly interested in the measuring part. Because if you can measure it, you can control it. If you can measure it, you can control it. And he said, I wanted to be in control of my life. And so he said, I didn't believe in anything. Couldn't see, touch, feel, or measure. Now, we don't want to. Our world doesn't want to put its faith in a world it can't see. Now, I think one of the reasons is because we don't want to be dependent. And we want to be autonomous. We want to stand on our own feet. Uh, and I think that's the reason that uh, you get uh, the thrust in our day on self-realization, self-actualization, self-fulfillment. I was interested in this little book, and if you haven't seen it, you ought to read it sometime, by Paul Vitz. is on the faculty of uh, New York University. He taught for years and taught the self-actualization. He taught uh, and self-realization schools. He dealt with men like Fromm and like uh, uh, Maslow and the major figures in that area. And he said, as I taught, he said, slowly it began to come home to me that what I was teaching, I didn't believe fitted with reality. But he said, there was my livelihood. And he said, what do you do? He said, this is what I was called to teach, and this is what I was paid to teach. And he said, slowly I came to an intellectual crisis in my life would I teach what I did not believe fitted reality. And so he ultimately wrote a book called Psychology as Religion. Now, he doesn't rule out the value of psychology, but he rules out psychology when it becomes a religion. And what he meant was that uh, many of these people in counseling today come at, at a person with the old Socratic notion that if he looks deeply enough inside himself and long enough, he'll find the answer to all his problems within himself. And so, he said, a great chunk of the counseling that's done in our day is done on the basis of a man looks long enough, deeply enough, profoundly enough, and with enough intelligence and direction within himself, he'll find his own resources, resources for his own problems. He says, psychology then has become a religion. Now, I'm convinced that that's the kind of thing that you have reflected in the creation story when the serpent said to Eve, if you do this, then you'll become his God. Because, you see, a God is a self-contained person, supposedly. And uh, you can live your life out of yourself and in yourself and in your own resources in the way you want to do it. Now, it's, it's rather shocking to us to believe that that isn't true. Let me share with you briefly Bill's story. Uh, he told me, he said, you know, I got along all right. And he said, uh, he's, he's very bright. He knows more unnecessary information than any man I've ever met. And that's a measure to me of brightness. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. He's got one of these mind sweeper minds, you know, that just sweeps up massive data and then catalogs it. So the next time he wants anything, he punches his computer and out it comes. And I look at him in awe. Uh, he was on the faculty of a major university. He uh, he's published probably more articles in scholarly journals in the field of the operation of the human brain uh, than any other man in the field of psychiatry in the United States. I mean, a remarkable guy. But anyway, 
he said, uh, I had a son now with the Boy Scouts. And he said, uh, he wanted to go with his scout master on a Boy Scout trip up into the Canadian woods and uh, in the North Woods. And he said, I always liked the outdoors. And so they wanted the parents to go. So he said, I decided I'd go home with my son. You know, it was a noble thing to do, to spend time with your son. And so he said, I tried to go. He said, I like the boy, the scoutmaster. He said he was a young guy, optimistic, friendly, cordial, just a good guy. He said, you can imagine a bit of my surprise when we came to the end of the first day. We tramped all day, and sitting around the campfire, we'd eaten. We were all full and comfortable, almost ready to go to sleep. When he pulled out a, a book and began reading, and it was religious. He said, uh, that was a little bit of a shock to me. Then when he finished reading out of that book that was religious, he said, uh, he said, I found out later it was the New Testament. He said, uh, when he finished reading that, he said, he said, let's pray. Bowed his head and closed his eyes and started talking. And he said, you know, the ridiculous thing was, the way he talked, he sounded as if he thought somebody was using him. And he said, that got to me. He said, you know, he's perfectly rational all day long up to this point. How does he lose his moorings quite so fast like this? So he said, I, you know, he said, I couldn't help but like the guy. So he said, the end of the next day, he said, I was sort of waiting. See if he'd do that again. Sure enough, out came that book he read. He bowed his head and he said, he started talking. And he said he sounded again as if it was somebody out there listening to him. And he said, I watched him. He was very reasonable, much in control of himself and his life. And he said, very, he said, you know, fitted the pattern of what we like to think about as normal, except for that aberration in his life. He said, you know, as I watched him day after day, he said, I thought, you know, that guy's a very wholesome guy said, he's exactly like I wish I could get my patient to become. Optimistic, friendly, happy, uh, hopeful, uh, charitable, concerned about other people. See, he's just wholesome. So he said, you know, I kept listening to him at night. And he said, one day a horrible thought came to me. He said, before that thought came to me, he said, you know, before I got to that, he said, I thought, yeah, he is the kind of guy I wish my patients were like. I said, I'd like to be like him. He said, now, I'm the doctor doctoring the human psyche. Why can't I produce people like that? He said, haven't been able to do it here. So he said, then that horrible thought came to me. Do you suppose what he does at night when his eyes are shut has something to do <laughs> with his wholesomeness? <laughs> And his happiness and his contentment and his faith and all the rest. And he said, you know, uh, it got to me enough one day. He said, I thought, well, I think I'll try that. <laughs> and he said, it was interesting the change that began to take place in me. He said, I got back to Duke and he said, uh, I thought, you know, it's a pity my patients aren't like that. And he said, I had found such joyous resources. He said, I thought, it's a pity that they can't know the secret that I've learned. But he said, you know, of course, I couldn't afford to tell them. <laughs> I wouldn't fit at all in the world in which I moved. 
So he said, you know, I had a sneaky thought. I thought, wonder if it would work if I prayed for them and didn't tell them I was praying for them. So he said, I decided I'd try it. He said, one day one of my partners came to me on the faculty and said, Bill, what new techniques are you trying these days? And he said, none. Standard stuff. Oh, no. He said, you're doing something different. What do you mean I'm doing something different? Well, he said, we've been talking about you. You're having a much higher success rate than you used to have. What are you doing different? He said, then I really was trapped. Couldn't tell him. <laughs> and then I thought, maybe I ought to tell him. Bill has become a very overt Christian witness. But here's what he said to me that interested me. He said, Dennis, the battle of my life was to believe there was a world out there it couldn't see. And a world out there it couldn't touch. A world out there it couldn't measure that I couldn't control. He said, you see, I had been indoctrinated in a learning system that had taught me that I should be in control my world. And he said, the resurrection of Christ shook me all to pieces. Because you see, if he believed in the resurrection of Christ, he'd have to believe there was a world out there that should control him, instead of him being in control of whatever world there was out there. And he said, the capitulation of my life was at the point of belief in the physical resurrection or the personal resurrection and he said, when I came to that point, life began to be different. Now, what happened? I think at that point, Bill began to draw resources from outside himself that are there and that are available. He lived his life up to that time on his own. And now he's come to the place where he believes, he's, at least he's going to try it as a world out there. And he tries it and he finds resources that are not his own. And then he wants to share those resources. Now, it's interesting that once you receive, you want to share. Now, I want to get back to that and uh, kick this around some. But you know what I've become convinced is normal life? Is receiving and giving. And I'm convinced we fight it and fight it, and fight it, and fight it. I don't like to receive because that makes me dependent. I don't want to be dependent. I don't stand on the music. I don't want to owe you anything. When I was in the pastor, one of the hardest things I had to do in a rural country parish was to, uh, down uh, in, the, in the cabbage patches in Formsville, North Carolina, was to accept gifts. And I had to learn. didn't come naturally. I'm convinced you can see the sinfulness of the human psyche more at this point than anywhere else. And if I do receive, I want to keep it. don't want to give it away. If somebody gives out of the generosity of his own heart to you money, what's your instinct? It's not to say, look, for heaven's sake, how good he's been to me now, I should share. You remember what they, they asked Henry Ford, how much money you wanted. He said, well, just another million. Those were days when a million was a lot of money, you know. But it didn't matter how many you had, just wanted one more. And so we, we tend to keep. 
But isn't it interesting that when Bill began to believe there was a world there beyond him and began to draw from it, his next reaction was he wanted to give it. I think that is when we're getting to uh, the heart of what true life really is. Now, we'll come back to that. But uh, it's interesting how we fight at that point what life is. We want to keep what we can get. We don't want to give what we've got. And the essence of life is tied up in those two things. I've become convinced that there are four knots, N-O-T-S, not uh, K-N-O-T-S. They may become knots, K-N-O-T-S, but four knots that need to be faced in terms of who we are. And if we misunderstand this, we'll never see the other. The first is that no man is self-originating. There's not a person here who chose to live. Not to say anything about producing your own life. Every person who ever lived, except the first person of the Blessed Trinity, for him life was a given. It was something he received. Life, nobody is self-originating. The minute I bump into any person I've never seen before, I know he had a mother and a father. And I know it. Don't ever have to see him. And he can deny it from Nile Doomsday. But I'll never believe it. Life is a given. It's not self-originating. We try to cover that up. All life is a gift. Gratitude is an appropriate attitude for a person who understands the true nature of the human creature. All right? Life is a gift, not self-originating. Neither are we self-sustaining. Now, we don't think about these things, but it isn't an interesting how it's written into our our being and written into our existence. How long can you live without food? Somebody lived not too long ago for 60 days, didn't he? 62. One of the fellows in Ireland. Before that, we talked a lot about 40-day fasts, Moses and Jesus and so forth. It's possible to live, apparently, a fellow who's in pretty good shape for 60 days. We're not going to live longer than that. And in terms of life, it isn't long. Isn't it interesting that most of us three times a day celebrate our dependence? And that we're not self-sustaining. How long can you live without water? Somebody said you can live 40 days without food and four days without water. Well, I don't know, stretch it to six. It's still a pretty short span of time but it's something extrinsic to you uh, but move from water then to the thing that's more personal bread how long can you live without oxygen without breathing what did they say after two minutes uh, death begins uh, to take place in the cells of your brain Isn't it interesting that 18 times every minute that you live, you pay tribute, you celebrate 
fact that you're not self-sustaining. I want to ask you, did God play a trick on them? A man has to be pretty blind to believe he's autonomous, doesn't he? And that he's self-contained. In control of his own life? You tell me who's in control of his own life. Unless he's got a means of creating oxygen and supplying himself. I'm convinced now that Three times a day and 18 times a minute, we celebrate a theological truth. Man's way is not in himself. Now, I've been working some in the Gospel of John. One of the most magnificent discourses in the life of Jesus is after he fed those 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children, those five loaves and two fish. And you remember the next day, the Jews came to see him. They wanted to keep him around. And uh, he said, uh, what you ought to be concerned about is not the bread that's represented in the bread and fish we had yesterday, but what you need to be concerned about is the bread that comes down from heaven. What's he saying? Man is made. It's another version of uh, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. His life is not in himself. He said, you should be concerned about the bread which comes down from heaven. And they instantly said, well, Moses fed the children of Israel with manna. He said, uh, that's not what you need either. What you need is the bread of life. And then what did he say? He said, I am the bread of life. Now there, there you've got it. That man's way is not in himself. And that we're not self-sustaining. Our sustenance is in him. Now, it's interesting. He speaks of himself as the bread. And you will remember we were talking about water. John also picks that one up, doesn't he? If you'll come to me, I'll give you water so you don't thirst anymore. And breath, the Hebrew word for breath, for uh, breath and for air, ruach is the word for spirit, and the Greek word for breath and for air is pneuma, and it is the word for spirit. And do not tell me that those are uh, casual accidents verbally. I'm convinced in my own mind that they're divine design. And God made life so I can understand his ways. If I've got the heart and the mind to understand. I've come to the place where I'm, I wonder if the true symbolism, uh, of, uh, the true symbolical expression of this is not what we do in church, but what we do three times a day. That, uh, there is the place where we express it most completely. Now, we come to church and we take a little cup and we take a wafer and they're symbols. But what are they symbols of? They're symbols of the true symbol. So that in a few minutes, when we sit down to eat, God has built into our life his own testimony that he is the one that we need. Our, our way is not in ourselves. 
Now, uh, uh, people can say, ah, you're taking it too far. I don't believe I'm taking it a whit farther than Jesus did. We're not self-sustaining. We're not self-fulfilling. It's interesting how we, uh, no man is fulfilled to live in total isolation. Let me go back to Robinson Crusoe and that footstep in the sand. Uh, I heard Chuck Colson last week, and in the course of his talk, he told about visiting uh, Death Row Easter Sunday morning in Indianapolis. He said, I wanted to visit Death Row. He said, I always try to when I'm in a prison if I can. He said, it's the most dehumanizing experience that can come to a man. Isolation from other human beings. We, uh, it's, it's, it's hellish. So he said that morning we walked down the corridor in death row. Every single man at eight o'clock was asleep. He said, what else is there to do? He said, when you talk with them, there's that hollow look in their eyes. They're dehumanized. He said, down at the end, the last cell, the light was on. And he said, as we got close to it, he said, we called Bill. And he uh, responded. said, two years before they had been there, and this fellow had found Christ. He said, we had an Easter sunrise service, or an Easter service, 8 o'clock in the morning on death row. He said, all around this dehumanization. And he said, I looked at him and his eyes were alert and his face was bright and he was smiling. He said, uh, I looked at him and said, uh, Bill, I'm sorry we couldn't let, let you know that we were coming. Now, why do you want to let him know that we were coming? Because man needs hope. And if he had known for a month ahead of time that Chuck Colson was coming, his whole month would have been happier and more human because he knew somebody was coming to see him who knew him, understood him, and loved him. And uh, he said, I looked into his eyes and said, I'm sorry, but the warden wouldn't tell us whether he could come until this morning. And so I, we just found out a few minutes ago we could come. The prisoner looked back at him and said, Chuck, that's all right. I knew you'd come back. You'd been here before. You talked to me about Christ. You led me to Christ. I knew you'd come back. So he said, it's all right. But he said, uh, I said, how do you survive? Oh, he said, they may have a body in here, but that's all they've got. <laughs> they may have my body in here, but that's all they've got. Now, what was he doing? He was drawing his life from a context that those around him couldn't see. They didn't know. And it didn't exist as far as they were concerned. But there he was. Man's way is not in himself. And our fulfillment, to be fulfilled as a human, is, is, is not in us. You can trace it all the way across life. It's interesting. Uh, let me jump to the, my fourth one and then back up to this one. The fourth one is this that we're not self-explanatory. There's no way that you can take a human being and explain what a human being is from that human being. 
There is no way that you can take one human being and explain what a human being is from that human being. Do you know that there's no such thing as a typical human being? You have to have two. At least to get a typical. Because if you get me and don't get Elsie, you've only got half of a type. I'm convinced that's the reason in Genesis 1 it says, let us make Adam in our own image, male and female, created he then. And you've got to have two to get one. We're not self-explanatory. It's interesting, you can't, uh, uh, this is one of my problems with homosexuality. You can't reproduce that way. It's in our diversity that you get creativity, you see. And you gotta have two to get one. And you, and you take, when are we most fulfilled? It is not when we're doing things for ourselves. It's when we're doing something for someone else. In a pastorate, one of the things that always excited me was, uh, when I developed a pastoral relationship with a young couple and they had their first kid. And to visit that mother in the hospital. And oftentimes I'd get there within not too many hours after the child was born. And see that mother as she, the baby lying there next to her perhaps, and the fulfillment. Uh, it was as if a woman would say, this is what I lived for. No more fulfillment here than I've ever known elsewhere. I had a woman, uh, tell me, this was way back in the dark ages before, uh, in the dark ages, I don't need to explain that to you. She said, uh, you know, there's something very unfair about the sexual mores in this country. She wasn't talking to a Christian. She said, a man enters into a sex relation and gets what he wants and is satisfied. And it comes in a matter of minutes. A woman enters into a sex relation and her fulfillment doesn't come until she's gone through pregnancy, birth, and lactation. Now she said, how is it that in this society men can get what they want and women have to pay such a high price to get what they want? Now there may be exceptions, but I think she's getting closer to the norm than, uh, but isn't it interesting how our fulfillment is related outside ourselves? And if you want to destroy somebody, just shut off all his relations around him. Now, what's being said in that? Do you know the difference between God and me? God is self-originated. That old question your kid asked, Daddy, who made God? He said, nobody made God. He's the only one who's self-originated. Self-sustaining. Jesus said about his father, he said, he has life in himself, and he's given to me to have life in myself. And what he was saying was, is you don't have life in yourself. But he does have life in himself. So Jesus could say, I am the life. You and I receive life. Jesus says, I am. Self-fulfilling. There's nothing in scripture that indicates that God had to create to be fulfilled. That there was a, joy, and there was a fulfillment there before the creation. Uh, 
may have been augmented after the creation. But there is nothing in scripture and in classical theology to reflect that God needed anything more for fulfillment. Uh, quickly, I read through the Quran when the Ayatollah seized our uh, hostages. And uh, it was fascinating. I studied three years in a Jewish university, so I know a little bit, not as much as I'd like, but I know a little bit about Judaism. You know, the, the one thing you will never find in the Quran, the statement, God is love. Nowhere will you find it saying Allah is love. Now, there are passages where it says Allah loves people that please him. But there's a radical difference between saying Allah loves and Allah is love. There's nowhere in Judaism that you can find anything saying that Jehovah, Yahweh, is love. He loves. But it's only when you get the doctrine of the Trinity spelled out, or at least the groundwork laid for it, that you can have God as love. You have to have more than one person. And so God is a self-contained unit, and you and I are not. God is love because there are three of them in love with each other. Now, we are single individuals. And so God is self-fulfilling and self-explanatory. If you understand God, you don't need anything else to explain it. Now, what's being said is, in Jeremiah, yeah, you're not God. And you need God. You're not God, and you need God. Now, we try to play the God part. And always when we do, we're the one, we're the disaster area. Always when we play the God part, we're the disaster area. But when we recognize that we're not, then there's a chance for us to find sustenance, life, fulfillment, all that we need. I, I think some of this bears on family life, how we relate to our husbands and wives, how we relate to our children, how we relate to our parishioners, how we relate to the world about us, how we relate to people.